You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show turns a different corner of life in Brooklyn, delivering stories, sounds, and scenery from the people and places that make it home. And until we know what's next, we'll be looking for clues at the intersection of affliction and inaction on a corner we've been calling 1920. Today it's May 23rd, and a party of one can bring in friends. It's summer, or it feels like it. The sun's back out, and so are we. The worst is over, never ended, or is about to begin all over again. We're bored, and it's confusing. We're dying, and it's dark. We're going back to normal, or to some place we've never been. And while some hope to return to the way things were, others of us know those things are mostly gone forever. It might take years to develop a vaccine, and now in minutes you can find out if you carry viral antibodies. But it might take months to know what they're good for, and it only takes seconds to spread the disease. I think what I'm saying is no one knows what's going to happen, how this all ends, and where we'll all be. But that's not stopping anyone from wondering and guessing, and the good news is, someone's bound to get it right. This week, we're going back to the future. First, we pivot to prioritize preservation. Then, our cards are shuffled and dealt. Next, we postulate post-COVID procedure. Then we go to town from the comfort of home. Next, we celebrate, solo and serene. Then we get advice on getting through all of this. Next, we check our messages, and finally, we check the weather. They say that nothing's gonna change the way we live, but things are changing, and likely for the worse, potentially for the worse. And if you think it's a crazy world we're living in now, the future's made of virtual insanity in Brooklyn, USA. Running a multidisciplinary arts institution, especially in New York City, means wearing many hats. It takes strategizing, fundraising, programming, fundraising, organizing, implementing, evaluating, fundraising. And as the city stares down economic ruin and New Yorkers cling to life and how we live it now, preserving and presenting Brooklyn's cultural heritage becomes that much harder and that much more important. Earlier this week, we got on the video phone with our own institution's leader to talk about shifting priorities, platforms, and what she hopes the future holds. Here's Christina. The arts, we are strong. We are resilient. Artists are healers. They remind us of our humanity. And so for me, it's really thinking about the future. We want creatives to continue to have the ability to work and make a living. We want to keep them inspired and motivated and not leave their craft. My name is Christina Newman-Scott, and I am the president of Brick in Brooklyn. I'm in Windsor, Connecticut. We are at my mother-in-law's house. I miss Brooklyn, but um, it's nice to have more space for the kids to run around. The president of a nonprofit institution, there's so many roles and responsibilities. Really right now, I'm most excited thinking about what we're calling One Brick, which is the coming together of our distinct disciplines. We have media, visual, 
performing and education flowing through. But I'm very excited now to tap into the power and the strength of all those disciplines colliding. Over 90% of everything that we do is free. So unlike many organizations that are based on high ticket prices for their events, we really believe that excellence in the arts belongs to everybody, to receive it, to be a part of it, and to be at the table for the creation of it. everyone. I hope you're staying healthy and safe out there. My name is Haley. I'm an animator and artist with Brick, and today I'm going to teach you how to make a stop-motion animated video. I'll be animating my toy dinosaur, but feel free to use whatever you have at home. You could use any toys, Legos, or just... Our focus right now is on leaning into our mission. Even in a moment of upheaval, making sure everything that we do feeds the mission is the most important. It's really easy at a time of crisis to kind of like, oh no, like let's come up with like 50 new things and maybe now we do bicycles. <laughs> like, I don't know what it is, but no, we are <laughs> doing everything that reaffirms who we are as an institution and continue to focus on the institution that we want to be post-COVID. So let's get started with our next step, which is going to be to start making some of the props for our background. Social distancing, quarantining has no doubt been hard in the art sector. We are not together as a community, but how we show up in the world is so important. And so for us, we pivoted pretty quickly to ensure that it wasn't going to be a pause, that you weren't going to be able to experience and connect with Brick during this time. But it was quickly about how do you reimagine how to connect and how do you make space and how do you even expand space so that there's a focus on inclusivity, equity and diversity, which are so important to Brick. We've been doing that in myriad ways. And at this point, we've shown, I don't know, over 80 virtual and or multi-platform presentations. We've been connecting with our students, with our fellowships that we're doing. We're doing one-on-ones with our artists and residents. We've maintained our residency programs. We're still bringing in visiting curators and connecting with artists. Our next step... Our classes actually have more people signing up to them now than we had physically in our building. Even with our town hall, which is a dynamic in-person experience around a key topic that's important to us, that's happening. We've learned so much in this 10-week period that we've been working remotely that it will be impossible for us to show up as the brick we were in early March. It's just not possible. Now, more love goes out to everybody who support the music and the movement. For over 40 years, Brick Celebrate Brooklyn has been giving folks a platform and a gathering place. Again, we had a fantastic lineup for this summer. It's the first time in 40 years that we're not together in the park. But that hasn't stopped us from imagining how to share the experience and what makes that festival different through a multi-platform presentation. Similarly to how Brick thinks about artists and their growth 
and building Brooklyn's creative future. Brick Celebrate Brooklyn Festival has been a fantastic grouping of emerging mid-career and noted voices. And it's that blend and mashup that sets us apart. So we're working towards a presentation and we are excited about it. And I think that people that have long enjoyed coming to the park will enjoy this experience, but nothing replaces in person. And so we imagine that we will be back, fingers crossed, with everyone in the park next summer. Hello everyone, Sky here. Uh, so for the last few weeks, we've been doing some tests using Zoom to record some productions. And it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and I just wanted to share some of the things that I've learned and that my team has learned. Hopefully it'll give you some things to think about when you're producing your show and uh, potentially using Zoom as a platform for, for recording your show. When I think about Brooklyn's creative future and how we continue to amplify voices, for me, it's like really workforce development at a time of hardship economically, where so many millions of people have lost work. It's a really important time for us to not deprioritize the creative sector and the jobs that are fundamental to the creative sector. So as we think about the future of our work post-COVID, a big part of our thinking is how can we allocate resources to artists to grow their craft and skill and really develop more incubation? There's so many communities that have digital gaps. How do we lift up and create space for those communities and bring added tools into their homes on channels versus ways that demand your cell phone or your laptop? Brick is such a multifaceted organization, and not only do we have an over 40-year history in performing arts and in contemporary art, but we're also the public access provider for the Borough of Brooklyn. So we have these six channels that reach a million homes, and as a place of incubation, it is essential for us to be thinking about, with the digital gap in mind, how we can reprioritize our linear channels to reach more people who do not have access to technology that we are all taking for granted. So we've been really thinking about how we can meet some community needs and create new opportunities. So once you have all that ready and you have your guests ready, then you are ready to record. This moment has shown us in a very real way the inequity that existed before COVID, especially for our communities of color, especially for black and brown people. We cannot continue to reinforce hierarchies and inequities that are such a disservice to the future of our world. We must do everything in our power to support those communities, to prepare them for leadership, and my hope is that we don't just show up again and we're like, and that's gone, we've got a vaccine. Let's go back to being inequitable. 
I'm hopeful that we won't deprioritize the arts because it is the thing that when we reflect on our culture in the future that we will be remembered for. It is the culture of our people, of our varying languages, of our music, of our buildings. All of the things that we love and hold dear are connected to our culture. So it is a moment that I am hopeful that we will prioritize our culture and not deprioritize it. Artists are our innovators. They are the people that are not afraid to tell us the truth. I'm hopeful and continue to be hopeful that artists lead the way. Hey everyone, um, my name is Alexandra and I will be doing a reading for Brooklyn. For this one, I decided to do a past, present, and future reading. So the first card that popped out for Brooklyn's past is the tarantula. The tarantula really represents um, being at a crossroad in your life. For those of us living in Brooklyn, this could specifically mean that, of course, with everything happening right now, you are at a crossroad in your life. Um, it could have been, should I stay at work? Should I focus on my creativity? Um, should I put my energy into projects? And so on and so forth. So when this card pops out, it means that you are really tasked with making a great decision. Um, and also in your recent past was the wolf. Um, the wolf is really cool when it comes out because it shows that it's the guardian of family and this is usually has to do with activism and what this shows to me is that for Brooklyn and people who have been living in Brooklyn you could have felt the time to really get into activism is now I've definitely seen you know people rallying together to do what's right for their community and sometimes we get really complicated with wolf energy because we think we know what's best for people. <laughs> um, and something that really is great when I see this card is to always think, embrace all and exclude none. Um, and I really love that because that's a beautiful message for Brooklyn. There are so many different people who, you know, are in this borough, living here, um, and really want the best for their own community. And then the last card that's represented by the past for Brooklyn is the hummingbird. Um, the hummingbird represents endless energy and positivity and being spiritually resourceful. This card could mean that people have come together, obviously with social distancing, but coming together virtually um, to really bring out that positive energy, you know, and this could even mean that you could have helped your neighbors, just letting them know, hey, this is where you can get, you know, this supplies from this store um, and so on and so forth. Um, so really uh, interesting energy and strong energy for that recent past. 
The science fiction writer Frederick Pohl said that a good science fiction story should be able to predict not the automobile, but the traffic jam. And I think through simulation, you actually get into this space where you lose control of what's happening. It moves from scripted into unscripted. And all of a sudden, these future problems start to emerge. And those are the traffic jams that we don't yet see because they're, they're not around us, but they could be. Elliot Montgomery. I'm one of the co-founders of the Extrapolation Factory. And I'm Chris Watkin, also a co-founder of Extrapolation Factory. We're really looking at design to shape space for discourse around really complicated questions that we know we can't solve through immediate simple steps, unlike the processes designers usually go through, maybe designing a chair or designing a poster. We started the project in 2013 to think about how we can take what usually happens in think tanks and design agencies, as well as academia, so the speculative design, and consider how we can, as designers, create a space for very experimental design to shape new conversations. We can't work on versions of futures that we can't visualize. And so in large part, what we attempt to do is to look around the world today to identify weak signals of changes or events that are taking place that might disrupt the way things work now and imagine how they might look in possible versions of futures. We absolutely enjoy <laughs> the set design kind of also the co-creation of the world, but then also to imagine what it might feel like to be in this world and of course interactive pieces and objects and all these like designed objects they really help us to communicate and enter that world. We were invited by Apex Art, the gallery in Tribeca, to propose an exhibit in their space and we floated this idea to kind of transform the gallery into an emergency simulator and we had connections at the emergency management. So New York City has a big uh, emergency management department that's uh, focusing, of course, after 9-11, not just on a terrorist attack, but mainly also on a coastal storm uh, and threats and blackouts. And so we positioned the project as an opportunity for them to investigate through this freeform medium a question or a challenge that might not be one that's as central to their work. This was 2015. Chris mentioned the coastal storms, hurricanes, etc. The idea of running this project around a pandemic seemed a bit more distant hypothetical uh, that of course was possible in the minds of emergency management but was not one that New York City had faced in recent memory. So they gave us a brief to not start thinking about another backpack that transforms into a tent or some like of the more traditional survival uh, tools, but really to think about these social challenges that could arrive and kind of to think through what kind of infrastructure or platforms we could create to allow for new communication or new aid mechanisms. We invited these designers to interpret what 
could happen in the context of a pandemic, and then to create some piece of infrastructure that you might find in the city in a, a hypothetical version of New York that would change the experience of working through a pandemic. And also for us, the first time that we started to collaborate and invite um, improv actors to play out what it could be to be in this Tribeca neighborhood during a pandemic. This is the backdrop, the scenario. NYC has been hit by a major pandemic of an unidentified airborne virus. The city has been battling against it for several weeks now, with research showing that it may spread easily via the transit system. The city, in association with the public transport and the police, are enforcing a strict regime of control, monitoring, and, where necessary, quarantining. Great. Well, well simulation begins, ladies and gentlemen. Safe space. Safe space. Safe space. Mm -hmm. There were six different infrastructural provocations that were incorporated in this hypothetical New York City set that we created as the space for the simulations to run. Hold still, hold still, hold still, hold still. Have you been around somebody that has had flu-like <coughs> symptoms, a I cough? Mean, uh, we live in New York. What, what kind of question? Don't you know this is a pandemic? We did see about it on Twitter, but I mean, so what's happening? Check them out. Yeah. Check it. Wait, wait, wait. Sit wait, on the wait, ground. Wait. Excuse me, what's happening? Here? This is an emergency situation, don't you guys know? The first was an intake device of sorts that was actually created by assembling a number of appropriated found objects, a, a massage table, a foam roller, yoga mat, and a, a very abstract intake form. And the artist who created this, Miriam Simon, was interested in exploring the kind of inversion of power dynamics that happen between someone who is working in an emergency capacity for, say, for example, New York City Emergency Management or FEMA or potentially the, the police and someone who's a, a resident of that area who may or may not be infected by the virus itself. So this is the emergency intake. Oh, perfect. This is a great one to use right now, right? Yeah, you'll want to uh, lay face down on okay, this. Great. Um, I lay down. face down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's turn sideways. Let's turn sideways. I don't want you blocking the stairs. I got other pedestrians to mess with. This is good. Your eyes are not bleeding. <laughs> Did you really need me to lay on this table to assess whether my eyes are bleeding? Yeah. Uh, can we go now? Is this over? Another one that was very interesting was by uh, Fabien Caparen, a piece that he called The Local Hero. And it was essentially a proposition that we might actually have some kind of directory or repository of local individuals who have some capacity to, to help out in the emergency scenario so that people can call upon their neighbors to become local heroes. Let's, let's explore this one over here. Okay. The L hero. Okay. Let's check this out. Oh, so honey, uh, yeah. our kid is sick. I don't know where to get medicine. I can't find soup. Maybe we need to talk to an elk hero. Right, it looks mm -hmm. like it can help. Okay. A ticket comes out of it. Oh, look, there's a hospital and a firehouse and a police station and a food point and an evacuation point. So for a, a user, this is very good. I like it. Oh, what about WebMG? Mm, because it says here, hospital, the closest one, Community Health Center, 268 Canal Street. Mm -hmm. So That's presumably great. there's lots of these all around the city. 
in defunct phone booths. Uh-huh. There was also one uh, by Natalie Jeremijenko who had proposed that uh, what if we would kind of build mechanisms and infrastructure to measure the health of rat population in New York City and, and what could that tell us and how could it help us to have uh, better data on public health, for example. That one was actually a, a series of windows that looked into rat homes and rat pathways that allowed observation to see what the rats were doing, what directions they were moving, and to observe their patterns of behavior. An X-Rat Collaboratory has been installed in this station. If you see something, say something 2015. So your observations of these mutualistic organisms contributes to intelligent monitoring of shared environments. So it's kind of like with the canaries, when we throw them in the caves full of coal, if they die, just mm. don't go there. Mm. Yeah. So maybe if you hear the rats, what are they saying? It means you're safe because they're not dead. Right, 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 right. And yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's helpful during this kind of emergency because there's things living. There's right. There's life. Life. There's life. There's life. We had things that were very kind of hyper pragmatic. So Matt Jones proposed a mobile solar charger that could be plugged into a city bike dock and then released and pushed around the city to provide energy. And on the other hand, these things that are much more kind of social and ethical that challenge the, the ideas we have about how we might interact with one another in a crisis of any sort. There was a project by Lana Porter and Channing Ritter, which kind of highlighted the serious problems that we've seen in the past around mistreatment and racial profiling of minorities in crisis scenarios. They were focusing specifically on African-American residents in New York City, but in this pandemic, we've, we've seen that kind of profiling extend out to other minorities as well. So seeing issues that we need to be talking about and thinking about speaks to the role of an approach like this to allow us to think about what a pandemic could feel like and inventing and visualizing the problems before they're actually here. In the very beginning moments of the simulation, we handed off these kind of script cards to the actors and they took control. And from that point on, we were observers. We were no longer the directors of this project or curators of this project. And I think that feeling was actually something that one can learn from as you think about entering into the unknown, the future scenarios. There were certain moments that felt like utter chaos. And so as I look back on it, the emotional experience of watching this uncontrolled simulation was actually, I think, a, a very powerful analog for what we are experiencing now, this lack of control around how this situation is being managed. And then there was a scene at the end where the actors actually faked their own deaths. And this was not scripted, this is not something that we had imagined, and we said, wow, that really took a turn for the dark. It became very morbid, and, and um, we're not sure if that's the, the future that we want to project. But certainly in the pandemic that we're all living in, we're watching an increasing number of deaths across the globe. I think there was a palpable fear that came through in the simulation in Alternative Unknowns. It was an unnerving scene to watch at times, and it, it strangely flipped back and forth between kind of um, fear and tension 
and humor and some weird balance of, of delight and delirium, which I think is, is an emotional state that a lot of folks are facing right now during this pandemic. Hi, my name's Henry. I live in Watertown, Massachusetts, and I'm in second grade. I want future kids to know what this time was like for me. You need to wear masks and masks. Like, who likes masks? And you're like, you have to stay away from people. You're not really, you have to wash your hands a lot, even more than you, you usually do. And you have to wait for the water to get so warm. And then sometimes that's very boring. When I went to school, it was... The first thing I was happy for is to have friends and like it feels like and now they're like gone and I can't see them and like it feels like it's like imagine you have an arm it feels like losing it so it's like losing part of it of you like your arm if you don't have your arm anymore would you miss it or would you not miss it because I would definitely miss it and that's how I feel with my friends and most of all, I just really love them. I think that my future friends are going to be, like, people that really want to spend time in nature and go on trees and, like, go swimming in ponds and lakes, go fishing to and study animals. If people keep on destroying nature and do it, um... It, this is all just going to turn into like a bunch of buildings and there's going to be no trees. But if we, if just in the noise, it's going to just be machinery. But if we actually want to survive here, well, we should actually try to do our part. Bye for now. Signing off. Earlier this week, Brick TV Managing Editor Brian Vines and the Be Heard team transported us from the comfort of our living rooms and into the uncertainty of the future. In the first ever virtual installment of their Emmy-winning Town Hall series, Brian and his team gathered thought leaders in education, healthcare, infrastructure, and labor, zoomed them into living rooms and laptops across Brooklyn, and led a thoughtful conversation on the post-pandemic future. Here's Brian. What you're about to see is an imaginative glimpse into the future. The future. The frontiers of the future are not on any map. They are in the minds of men and in the test tubes and laboratories of the great industries we have built up here in America. Let's travel into the future. What will we see? Hello, we are live. It is seven o'clock right now in Brooklyn, USA. Things are different, but as much as they are, some things are still the same. This is the Brick Be Heard Town Hall, The Foreseeable Future. We're going to be talking to some people who make it their business to project ourselves and our culture into the future. In some instances by 50 or 100 years, but right now we're challenging them to live in the most provocative space of the future. 
the foreseeable future, the next 12 to 24 months as they will go down here in Brooklyn and around the world. So some of you may be wondering just what is it that a futurist does? Historians are concerned with the study of the past. Journalists are making the reporting and showing us what's happening in the present. And futurists are people who are gathering information, analytics, and stories to tell us about where we may be going. We're going to be talking with Greg Tate first. And Mr. Tate is joining us from Harlem. We're going to be talking with him about culture. Uh, this whole question of post-pandemic, what is it going to become? I mean, that, that's an assumption that there is a post-pandemic that doesn't take into account, even if we're talking about a um, reduction in the number of infections and number of fatalities, we're going to be talking about the culture of grieving, the culture of mourning, of remembrance. Because here in New York, it's very interesting. You're very sensitive to the fact that you're living in a parallel universe or in a place that has parallel universes. There's such wide discrepancy between how this pandemic is being experienced by those in shelter, those in quarantine, and then those who are on the medical front lines. And then there are the uh, essential workers who have to put themselves forth into the world every day. In um, this situation where they're exposed to a very nasty, vicious, thirsty, hungry virus, they have to do the opposite in some cases of what everybody else is being told to do in terms of exposure to sociality. There's, the, there's a culture of PTSD, of trauma, that's going to be a part of what we do um, as a nation, as a village, as a tribe, as a corner in this that has to be factored in. Dr. Jonathan Metzel is coming all the way from his kitchen in Brooklyn. All right, BK. He's a professor of sociology and medicine, health, and society, and the director for the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. The second part that I think we've recognized, again, given the profoundly incommensurate rates of death in in particularly um, African-American and Latinx populations, um, is, is that um, this illness is not just a medical illness, it's also a social illness, it's also a political illness, because the people who are at risk now, it's not like they're biologically at risk, it's not like there's some kind of genetic reason they're at risk, they're at risk because they, they live in an insecure housing situation or a, you know, a very dense housing situation. If they have jobs, um, where they have to go out and put themselves at risk, being in, in particular kinds of jobs. They live in neighborhoods that, that have uh, infrastructure that has not been adequately taken care of. And so I think the other issue is we've got to fix these kind of social inequities in this country. Um, and, and of course, that is horrific and deadly for people who live in low-income areas. As we're seeing here, the virus really preys on social infrastructure that has not been taken care of. And I think we need a, a dramatic national effort to address that infrastructure. But also, look, look at this virus, look at this pandemic. The virus keeps spreading until we put it out in everybody, right? And so it's also important for the country that we address these social inequities. So number two is to address 
the underlying social issues. And of course, we've seen that particularly in places like Brooklyn, where the people who were already at risk before the virus become more at risk afterwards. Something that is very foremost in a lot of people's minds right now is we're a few weeks away from the first of the month, the future of work. Heather McGowan is one of the foremost experts on the future of work and where it is that we're going. What kind of ways will work and society have to adapt for folks who have to make money and educating their children and homeschooling? Um, I think we might have to look at jobs having, you know, flexibility in terms of hours. Like you may be working in the morning for your company, in the afternoon you should maybe be teaching your kids. You might be working um, early evening for your company, but your company has to understand that your family comes first. And I think that we can get if we don't have commuting hours. And if we focus on the things that really need to get done, we might be able to get them all in there. But I think back on your, just on your point before that about leadership, one of our biggest problems in this country has been a me-we problem. In uh, September, October, you might not have cared if your Uber driver had health insurance or paid sick leave. But in May, you sure do, because their health is your health. And the more we can see the interconnectedness of each other, we might make better me-we decisions. We've got a leader right now who sees the world as a, a zero-sum game, and he's only winning if somebody else is losing. And that is faulty logic, and we need to get more people to understand that. Like talking about the infrastructure pro projects being a bunch of small little wins, they all begin with leadership and painting a picture of a world that doesn't exist yet, that has a place for all of us, where we is stronger than any of the individual me perspectives. Dr. Cindy Frewin is a futurist as well as an architect, and she teaches the Designs Future Workshop and Social Change at the University of Houston. She's also a primary in her own architectural firm and provides some strategic foresight. So Dr. Frewin, send us home with a reason to be hopeful in this concrete jungle. The only time people innovate is when there's a disaster. I, I, you have to innovate. And so we have one. We have multiple layers of one. I mean, it has not even finished reaching its peak, I think, in terms of how bad it is. And so be ready for this longer term. But know that because of the disruption, everything is changing and you have a chance to make that change work for what you're interested in. What matters to you? These connections that we're talking about, the consequences of what we're doing now are going to last for a generation or more. And yet we're thinking, you know, we're so, we're hooked on the day because the crisis is here, but people that are gonna come out of this are gonna shoot out of it. I mean, they're going to have something burning inside of them that they wanna get done. And now they can get attention that they could never get before. And this is the time to do it. Don't wait to see what's going to happen, but head out, just like Cindy said, to, to create it. Because the obstacles are dissolving. It's time to strike. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna call it there. You heard it, the obstacles are dissolving and it's time to strike. And we'll be there to share the stories as you make the world that we all wanna see post this virus. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for watching. And I can't wait to see each and every one of you in person so soon. 
Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Thank Rick. Yeah. Next yes. time in Brooklyn. You can see the rest of the foreseeable future, a virtual Be Heard Town Hall, by visiting Brick TV's YouTube page. The first card of the present is represented by the lamb. Um, the lamb really pops out when an important message must be heard. So this could be from a stranger, this could be from a really old friend um, that really just gives you wisdom. And that really connects to the next card that's represented in the present, which is the nightingale. Um, the nightingale is fearless. The nightingale really represents opening the bridge between your heart and your voice. You looking deeply into yourself and thinking, what what do I need to say? What is stuck inside me that I haven't been able to represent or voice? Um, and that's really great to see. The last cards that are represented by your current state is the dragonfly and the crocodile. The dragonfly really pops out when our minds aren't at peace. You know the dragonfly's wings, they move mad fast and you know they're constantly going you know from space to space plant to plant i really love that because it's just a gentle reminder okay even though we are you know in these really i know i've said that so many times but even though uh, things are super weird right now there's still the possibility that you can calm your mind and the dragonfly popped out um, in couple with the crocodile um, so when the crocodile comes up this means that you're resting and cooling off. You're filling up your reserves so that the next move that you make comes from a place of wisdom and power. And I don't know if you guys heard that, you know, sound just beeping, um, but I really love when my environment communicates with me as I'm doing readings because it's like, yeah, this crocodile represents, yeah, you're, you're taking that time to really cool off. And it doesn't mean that you're not being aware of what's going on, but you're just making sure that you see the situation clearly um, and you're making your next move from a place of wisdom and power. New York is a place that taught me to be comfortable with my own company. So it's fitting that I am alone here during the pandemic. When I moved to New York City a few years ago, I knew two people in the city. It took time to build a community. I was initially shocked at how often people cancelled plans here compared to back home. I remember how several months after I moved here, I had three different friends cancel on me three days in a row. But looking back, it was my first lesson on learning not to look outside myself for my happiness and well-being. Fast forward to the pandemic and I am thriving with all this alone time. Before the pandemic I tended to go out every night, but now my energy is shifted inwards. I no longer have fear of missing out, since all of us are in the same boat. I've always wanted to go on the 10 day Vipassana silent retreat, but have never had the opportunity to do so. However, going through Ramadan this year during a pandemic, has provided an opportunity to go and retreat at home. In essence, Ramadan is generally a temporary turning away from the material world in order to reflect and meditate. 
Most years I find it difficult to make time for solitude and meditation in a diary packed with work, dinner dates, charity fundraisers and communal prayers. Most of us Muslim New Yorkers try to pack as much in as we can. However, this Ramadan the world is conspiring to help us find that alone time, to sit in contemplation, to meditate, to find stillness. When you can't go outside, the only way to go is inwards. The poet Rumi talks about how the deepest journey is within. He says, you have no need to travel anywhere. Journey within yourself. Enter a mine of rubies and bathe in the splendor of your own light. Going within is also sometimes the most difficult place to go. We meet pain, sadness and difficult memories on the way. But we also have the opportunity to go beyond that and descend into a treasure trove of self-awareness too. As I sift through my own inner landscape, I feel blessed and grateful to have this opportunity. Small things like sunshine through my window the sweet taste of pineapple and a bird tweeting on my forescape all feel like gifts. I don't think I have ever been as grateful in my life as I am right now. My name's Saima Mohammed. I'm a journalist and these are my reflections on being in self-quarantine. I um, had a funny dream last night where there was like some kind of bird in my dream. I was thinking it was maybe a water thrush, but it was it was like a dream bird, not a real bird. And Kyrell was there, and Ooh. Kyrell walked over to the bird and like put his hand out, and the bird like got on Kyrell's hand, and and then Kyrell like immediately turned to me and was like video video like he wanted me to like take a video of it so i like pulled out my phone and oh, I'm kind of holding the bird that's really funny did you wake <laughs> up and like that video was on your phone somehow <laughs> yeah that'd be amazing that'd be so, to show people like on with nature yeah yeah <laughs> man that would be it would be fire in the in the ig story for sure <laughs> I had another crazy heart surgery related dream like two nights ago, which was really weird and also random. I dreamt that I had another heart surgery scheduled and the doctor was trying to like cut my heart out with baking supplies. So there was like, especially like I remember this cookie cutter and she was like pressing it into my heart. And I was like, this is just like a cookie. Cutter. She was like, yeah, this is how we're taking your heart out. It was like baking supplies. Wow. So were you like a gingerbread woman? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, was, it, was, like, it was like a flower. It, it was shaped like a flower. That's so dark. Wow, you know, these like, recurring dreams. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> is there any part of that you can look up? Um, I I know, ch- like cookie cutter? <laughs> if you dream of a cookie cutter? 
Let's what did see. we determine like heart transplant meant? Um, choices. Was it choices? Like making tough choices? Something like that. Um, cookie cutter. Monotony and sameness. To see or use a cookie cutter in your dream symbolizes monotony and sameness. Oh. So. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. You are trapped in the suburbs. Yep. The dream may be telling you to deviate from the norm. Do something or say something unexpected. You know I'm the huggiest person on planet Earth. I'm missing hugs. But you can get everything you need, even if you can't get hugs anymore, on the Internet. Okay, um, so you ready? My name is Howard Bloom. I'm the author of seven books, the most recent of which is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul and the Power Fits of Rock and Roll. And, and there's lots more, um, but that's approximately who I am, vaguely. Basically, at the age of 10, I took my science very seriously. I read two books a day. It was ferocious. But when I was 12, I realized that I was interested in the ecstatic experience and mass human emotions. Eventually, I got fellowships for grad schools in something that didn't have a name yet. It was neuroscience. I was going to have to paste it together myself. And I dropped out of school because how many ecstatic experiences and mass human emotions are you going to see giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students? So I got into a field I knew nothing about, popular culture. And a few years later, I found the biggest PR firm in the music industry. My clients included Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, um, ZZ Top, I mean a whole bunch of others. The list just goes on and on. Cool and the gang. I was working 17-hour days, um, seven days a week. It's the way I've always worked. It felt like being um, a fighter pilot under continuous fire. And uh, I knew someday I would burn out. And sure enough, on March 10th of 1988, my body gave out totally. And I ended up in bed for the next 15 years. CFS is chronic fatigue syndrome. That's the illness that hit me in 1988. It is a devastating, brutal, ghastly disease. Meant I was too weak to talk, and I was too weak to have another person in the room with me. I was 45 when I got sick, and I didn't have the strength to leave my apartment again until I was 60. Now that I couldn't get out of bed, now that I couldn't even talk, what the hell was I going to do? All of my sense of a future was gone. And with that future went my sense of humanity. For the first three years, I struggled, even when I couldn't talk. I struggled to get to my front room and sit in my favorite office chair at my favorite desk 
and work. And after three years, I realized something. I was spending all of my energy on walking to the front room and trying to sit in a chair. And the only way I was going to be able to continue to function was if I lay down in bed and set up two computers next to the bed. There was this thing. It wasn't really new. It had been around at that point for 10 years. Um, I'd been on it since 1983. It was called the Internet. Cyberspace was such a lonely place when I first got on in 1983 that when Peter Gabriel spotted me there, he came over and said hello immediately because there were almost no people up there. And there were no browsers, and there was no World Wide Web, and finding your way around was really difficult. But I started organizing scientific groups, and I started finding women. I became a cyber Lothario, and I discovered something. Soul comes alive online. When you are online, the body melts away, and it's all about who you are at heart. It's all about your soul, and you could make soul-to-soul -soul contact with people. I had been brought into a group called the Human Behavior and Evolution Society. This was the primitive equivalent of a chat room. So you would type in a message, and other people would reply. So there I was, laying in a bed with my whole life gone, and I came alive in the Human Behavior and Evolution Society chat room by typing to people. People from Australia, from Israel, from Germany, from Holland, from all over the place, from Moscow, on my time. I mean, often because of this illness, I would be wide awake at four in the morning, and I could talk to my collaborator in Moscow. Online became as real a world to me as the non-virtual world as the world of objects that you can kick. And it still is. I have a relationship which is the most important love relationship in my life right now. And it's with a woman 9,100 miles away. We've been dating for 20 months, and she's in South Africa in Johannesburg. And I'm here in Parslope, Brooklyn. And because of the 9,100-mile distance and the clampdown of the coronavirus, I can't go see her but it is the most real and important and overwhelmingly astonishing relationship. It has opened entire continents of emotion that I never imagined existed before. Look, when I was 10 years old, no other kids wanted me in Buffalo, New York, and my parents couldn't have given less of a shit about me. And I found solace in books. Well, what is a book? It's a virtual world. So I grew up in virtual worlds, and they are more real to me than the world of the stuff that you can kick with your foot. People without social nourishment and social contact wither and die. Their immune system gives up and lets any disease that wants them in. Their longevity disappears. Their health disappears. I would have been dead if it weren't for the internet. We don't buy a cell phone to have an extra seven ounces of plastic and chrome and glass in our pocket. We don't buy it for its material qualities. We buy it because it's a pipeline. And what is it a pipeline to? Other human souls, other human beings, to social immersion. These objects that we denigrate as being tech and inanimate and dehumanizing 
the internet and any tool that we have, the limits of that tool are not the limits of the tool themselves. Your task is always to find the infinite and the tiniest of things. That is always the human task. If it was enormous enough to keep me alive when it was a thousandth or a ten thousandth of what it is today, then being ten thousand times richer, it has even more possibilities for seeing and feeling the infinite. This is going to be a remarkable learning experience. It's, it has many nightmarish qualities, especially for those who lost somebody. That's a nightmare. But it is forcing us to take advantage of a whole adjacent possibility that has infinite potential. Follow your interests. Follow the things that genuinely excite you to the people who share your excitement. And then get involved with those people. Sociality gives us health, life, robustness, and vigor. Isolation kills. Get out online and start socializing. Hello, this is Greg, and I'm calling from OP in Brooklyn. That's Ocean Parkway, if you know, you know. Long time, first time caller, that is Brooklyn, USA, people of the future. This is my message to the people of the future. In May of the year 1940, 80 years ago from where I sit in 2020, Winston Churchill supposedly said to his peeps during World War II, if you're going through hell, just keep going. Now, Churchill's mother, Jenny, was from Brooklyn, so generally speaking, the Churchills knew what was up and they were down. Uh, during World War II, Winston's country was, in fact, going through hell, and now, in 2020, most of America and the world is going through hell. A majority of New Yorkers may have thought they had it bad before COVID-19, but nothing could prepare us for this 2020 global epidemic that has been especially bad in the epicenter here in New York City. Not just bad because of the quarantine and not just bad because we've been told to stay inside and we may now have to wear masks, but bad as in hell bad. Countless deaths, countless jobs lost, not to mention fear, hatred, sadness, loneliness, devastation, true hell, but... We gotta keep going. And if you hear this in the future, I guess, when you think about it, you're one of the humans who is lucky enough to live to see the other side. You survived and you made it through this particular hell. So you keep going, too. No time for survivor's guilt. The lesson is clear and use hell as your motivation. Maybe the world wars can be a lesson to future people that their life isn't that bad and that they can make it through their own hells, no matter how big or small. 
We all need gratitude. Focus on being grateful for the good things in your life every day. Maybe that gives you peace and appreciation to do great things in your life. Because maybe compared to the hell of a World War II or a 2020 pandemic, maybe your future life isn't so bad? Either way, be grateful for the good times and thrive. And most importantly, future people keep going no matter what. Or as Churchill said supposedly 80 years ago on his famous May 1940 speech, We shall never surrender. And if you're going through hell, keep going. Never, never, never give up. Winston Churchill voice. And his mom, Jenny, was from Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Now, in the time since I started this voicemail, I do see online that Winston Churchill probably maybe did not say this famous quote. Nah. Listen, I went through hell deciding whether I should continue on with this narrative. And I just kept going. Churchill's mom, Jenny, is from Cobble Hill, though. That shit's true. If you want to send us a message, check the show notes for a link to our handy guide on how. And if you'd rather reach out the old-fashioned way, call us at 917-719-0021 and tell us your name, where you're calling from, how to reach you, and what you think the future holds. We're here when you need us, and we can't wait to hear from you. The next card that popped out for the future is the deer card. Um, and the deer card represents celebrating a new life. You know, having the deer come out as the first one is really great because it shows really tapping into your own desires. A lot of people are still, you know, celebrating new life physically by giving birth. There is still celebration. Remember to be patient. Uh, remember to always be kind with yourself um, and with those that you love around you. And the next card for the future for Brooklyn is the lizard. This is really interesting that this came out, but the lizard pops out when we're being overstimulated. You know, if big crowds are wearing you down, I don't know if we are going to reopen anytime soon, but in the event that that does happen, um, this card could mean, you know, just pull back and listen to your inner voice and ask yourself, is this the right thing for me to do? And really try to stay away from overstimulating things. If you are watching just a ton of mindless TV like I am, or you feel like, you know, once we do open up, you want to run back out and see your friends, just take that extra time to just really think with yourself and say, okay, is this decision going to resonate with me? Is it going to affect? Who is it going to affect? And then finally, the last card for the future of Brooklyn is the swan. I really love the swan because when it pops out, there is a message to be heard, just like all of my cards, but this card won't let up. So the swan represents effortless creativity, effortless desire to tap into the wells of art that exists within you. And this card is not to be taken lightly. Your soul is calling for attention. So make sure that you have that solo time with yourself, 
that you are thinking deeply about your decisions, about where you want to go moving forward in your life. You want to make sure that your next move is from a place of wisdom and power. So don't forget that you have a well of knowledge that resides within you. Um, I really love this one card um, and I really love that I came up in the future because it shows that hopefully together as a community that we'll be able to create from this, that we'll be able to thrive after this, um, and that we'll be able to come together um, and do what's best for the greater good and the people who are most affected in our communities. Stay safe, everybody, and have a beautiful weekend. Weekend weather is gripping. Weekend weather with Griffin! Hey everyone, it's Junior Meteorologist Griff City talking about the weekend weather. Your city, Brooklyn, USA. Friday, high 75, low 55. It will be rainy. Saturday, high 60, low 50. It will be rainy. Sunday, high 78, low 53, it will be partly cloudy. Weekly fun fact. Did you know that Jimmy Fallon was a, has a slide in his house and that he was born in Brooklyn, USA? Isn't that cool? Oh, and one more thing. Did you know that the script to Back to the Future got rejected many times? And what I learned from it is to keep on trying. I hope you like listening, Brooklyn. Bye. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barry. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle. And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Roe Johnson, Brian Vines, Anna Luke, Amanda Harrington, Brick Radio Junior Meteorologist Griff City, Lauren Germain, Taylor Cook, Henry and Eliza Petro, and Lauren Root. If you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BrickTV. And while you're hooked up to the Matrix, cruise on over to youtube.com slash BrickTV to check out the entire Be Heard Town Hall for the foreseeable future. And while you're there, follow at Brick Brooklyn for the arts, music, and cultural programming we're presenting live in your living room on Brick at Home. And if you want to sharpen your presenting skills, check the show notes for a link to Brick's online media education portal. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio. Well, we were meant to actually protect nature and not just sit around. I mean, like, it's okay to watch a movie, like, some days and, like, maybe play a video game, like, once a month or something. You could, you can, like, you can do technology. Sometimes you can do technology a bunch of times if you want to learn about nature with them, but it's mostly better to learn about nature just with your own eyes and not just technology or else your brain's going to turn into mush.